And when the evening comes, we smile. In 1998, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson began exploring the beginnings of the world's greatest superhero team over an epic 12-issue comic maxi-series. And yes, we've just begun. That team was the Justice League of America, and that comic was JLA Year One. In 2016, eight podcasts will come together to cover this series in a single month. That month is JL May. Featuring the Fire and Water Podcast. The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, The Lantern Cast, Supermates Podcast, The Idle Head of Diabolu, Comic Reflections, and Views from the Long Box. Each podcast will cover one or two issues of JLA Year One, and then coverage will move from show to show. It all starts in the Fire and Water Podcast with issues one and two. JL May, an epic month for an epic series. Available where you find all good podcasts. Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Power of Fishnets. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for this momentous occasion is a fellow Black Canary fan, the host of Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast. Please welcome Ashford Wright to the show. How are you doing, Ashford? Cheers, everyone. I'm doing quite well. Thank you. I am doing well, too. Thank you very much for being on this show. As soon as I heard the first episode of Feathers and Foes, well, I, mean, I had a couple of thoughts kind of simultaneously. One was, thank God, now I don't have to cover the series on my podcast. Because I do, <laughs> I love the birds. I love Birds of Prey. That was such a good book. But it was a lot of research that I didn't want to have to do on one of my shows. So I'm glad that you're taking over for it. The show is really good. I, I love your style. It's a fun show. Thank you for saying that. Uh, it's actually an honor for me to have your blessing because I kind of consider you the Black Canary guy. And it's just an honor for me to cover this book. I'm having so much fun with it. No, and, and again, thank you for saying that. Because the other major thought I had was as soon as I heard that episode, the first episode that you did, I was like, I've got to collaborate with this guy on something. Uh, it, and it was really just a matter of time figuring out the right project. And for those of you listening to the show right now, the time and the project is now, the month of May, specifically JL May. This is the podcast crossover event celebrating DC comic book series JLA Year One. The series was 12 issues long, and it's going to be covered in eight different podcasts released throughout this month. 
Ashford and I are going to cover issues three and four of the series. This is the second part of the crossover. If you haven't already done so, check out the Fire and Water podcast, episode 163. Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag covered the first two chapters of JLA Year One, and they also provided a lot of the context for the series. The basic information you need to know is, after Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 1980s, the history of the DC Universe underwent some drastic changes. One of the more noteworthy alterations was the roster of the original Justice League of America. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, the trinity of the DCU, were no longer founding members of the JLA. Original members Aquaman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Martian Manhunter were joined by newcomer Black Canary, whose post-crisis origin established that Dinah Laurel Lance was a legacy hero, the daughter of Dinah Drake, who had also fought crime with the Justice Society of America as the first Black Canary. Hope you all got that. Uh, the first adventure of this new original JLA, their origin story, was told in Secret Origins issue 32, and you can hear all about that on episode 32 of the Secret Origins podcast. You know, if you're into something like that. But the question of how that fledgling group of very different, very inexperienced, and arguably second-tier characters would become the world's greatest superheroes would not be told for another ten years. In 1997 and 1998, Mark Wade, Brian Augustin, and Barry Kitson explained that transition in the 12-issue maxi-series JLA Year One. Like I said before, Ashford and I are going to cover issues 3 and 4 on this episode of Power of Fishnets. But before we get into that review, Ashford, what is your history with this series? Had you read the book before, or were you just doing it to prep for this show? A little bit of both. So I read this story about 12 years ago, and I was just getting into D.C. Mm-hmm. And I, the only thing I remember about this story is, one, I believe this was my first Doom Patrol story. Okay. And in addition to that, the, the only thing I really remember was getting out of it, the whole thing about Aquaman not speaking loudly because sound travels easier in water. Mm-hmm. And I just came out of it like, hey, Aquaman's pretty cool. Yeah, this was definitely – it was a different take on Aquaman. I like the way Wade writes him. He's he's a little bit angrier. He's a little bit, dare I say, bitchier Aquaman <laughs> in this story. But he still – he affords himself pretty well. I like that. So, I think I read it for the first time 2008 or 2009. Part of me was really hesitant to get into this st- this series. And this is going to sound crazy because I'm such a Black Canary fan, but – I have always had this problem with the post-crisis retcon that she was a founding member of the Justice League. I don't think she belongs in that. For me, it's Wonder Woman. She is the first woman on the Justice League of America. And I liked Black Canary so much, but I was like, she really doesn't deserve that. So hearing that, okay, this is a whole story about that, I didn't, I wasn't ready to embrace that, but I finally did. I finally read the series mostly because I like Mark Wade. I've liked everything of his that I've ever read. So based on the strength of his writing, I was like, I'll give it a shot. And well, it's a really good series. As I think yes. if people have read it, they should know that it's a really good series. If they haven't read it, if they're just listening to this podcast crossover event, hearing these stories for the first time, I think they'll get the the clue pretty quickly that, yeah, it's a good book. Now, the one thing about this story I enjoyed as well written, 
and there's some mixed reviews I have about it, like the portrayal of t- certain characters. But the one thing I do agree with it, and I know a lot of people don't like this, I just don't believe that Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, the Holy Trinity, mm-hmm. that they would have time to be in the Justice League. I just have a hard time wrapping my brain around that when I go to the comic book store and you have Batman, he's in 17 different books. <laughs> and he has time for Justice League. I just, when there's a big threat and they show up um, as part-timers and take the lead, I believe that. Mm-hmm. But them being in a Justice League on a random Tuesday, I, I can't buy it. I hear that, and <laughs> with that explanation, I agree with that. And I, I think that was a big part of their their justification after Crisis, is that these guys, they've got to establish who they are in their own series, Superman and Batman. They don't have time for the League. And it makes a certain degree of sense. And I think part of it is just the kind of the way I approach the team. And maybe... In my head canon, the way I kind of view it and the way it makes sense in, in my mind is the Justice League isn't like a standing league. Like, and, and it doesn't make sense because they've always had their clubhouses and their bases. And I think maybe the team works better if it's a special occasion. If they only come together when there is a big you know, crisis or a big threat to Earth. But they wouldn't hang out together normally. And, exactly. But I, but then, I mean, that's so much of the book's history and the team's history flies in the face of that. And ultimately, that's why you got so many of the, of the popular runs of the book dealt with the second and third tier characters who couldn't support their own series. Like a lot of my favorite era of the Justice League was when they were in the satellite. A lot of those books were, you know, starring characters like Green Arrow, Black Canary, Elongated Man, Zatanna. These weren't characters who were starring in their own adventures regularly. The Justice League was their home. And it was also the place where the writers could give them characterization. When you have Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman on the team, the writers can't do anything really new or anything special with the characters because they have to be in service to what the characters are doing in their own books. The, the You know, Batman's other 17 books are going to dictate what Batman mm. is doing, like you said. So your explanation makes perfect sense. Yeah, Superman and Batman, they wouldn't have time to be at the Justice League headquarters all the time. They would be the reserve backup members that only show up when stuff gets real. But, I don't know. I, I guess the way I would prefer to envision the Justice League is that they really only come together when they need to be together. Yes. It's not like uh, JSA where it's a family. Exactly. Yeah, they were their own kind of supporting cast. Yeah. Okay, folks, we're going to take a short promotional break. We will be back in a minute with JLA Year One, Issue 3. Don't go away. Don't call them babes. Definitely don't call them broads. But can we call them birds? Welcome to Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast where we are celebrating the tales of the Femme Fatales. Superman flies above you, Aquaman rules below you, but the birds stand with you. Feathers and Foes, I'm your host Ashford, and in the studio with me is... Hello. Black Canary? Wait a minute, what did you do with Leah and Mark? Did you just call me a broad? No, I said don't call them babes, don't call them broads. So you're saying I'm not a babe? No, yes. I don't know. I I don't see you as some object. I see you as a well-rounded character with her own wants, desires, and agency. Stop saying buzzwords, hoping to gain a female audience. Canary, how dare you question my sincerity? That's Black Canary to you. 
Do you want me to plug your show or not? Please plug my show, Miss Canary. You can contact Ashford, Leah, or Mark on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Feathers and Foes. You can also email them on the website feathersandfoes.libsyn.com. In addition to all of this, you may subscribe to them on iTunes. Just go to the search option and type Feathers and Foes. JLA Year One, Issue 3 is written by Mark Wade and Brian Augustin, illustrated by Barry Kitson, lettered by Ken Lopez, colored by Pat Garrahy, and edited by Pete Tomasi. The issue has a cover price of $1.95 and a cover date of March 1998, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, it would have hit the shelves on January 14th that year. The cover shows the members of the Justice League, minus the Martian Manhunter, but plus Snapper Carr, looking in shock at someone sitting in their headquarters at a chair with the familiar Superman S-Shield printed on it. The story, which is untitled, opens at the secret headquarters of Locus, the criminal scientists who function very much as the DC equivalent of Marvel's AIM. Vandal Savage has hired Dr. T.O. Morrow to vivisect the Golden Rock, one of the Appalachian invaders thwarted by the Justice League on their first adventure. Morrow has harvested the alien's organs in order to create an artificial super-being that Locus will control. But when Morrow throws the switch, the spark of life proves a little too combustible, and his creation explodes, trashing the lab. Savage and the Locus leadership can take some comfort in knowing that the U.S. government likewise failed to harvest any usable genetic material from the Appalachian fire giant and gave the inert alien back to the Justice League of America. Speaking of which... Three members of the JLA, the Flash, Green Lantern, and Black Canary, arrive at Cord Industries in Chicago, just as Killer Shark and some of his men are stealing from Cord's advanced weapons tech. When the Killer Sharks strike back, the Flash saves Black Canary and Green Lantern effortlessly knocks out the villains. Canary is less grateful for the save, claiming she doesn't need the men of the team pulling her out of danger every time they go into battle. Green Lantern addresses the reporters that gather in the aftermath of the Killer Shark scuffle. Flash and Canary note how easily Green Lantern works the press. Flash teases Canary that Green Lantern is the spokesman because, well, he's the cute one. Canary throws it back in Flash's face, conceding that Green Lantern is indeed good-looking. The heroes meet young Ted Kord, a brilliant if messy mechanical engineer. Canary observes how Flash acts in the lab, and his familiarity with the scientific equipment. Ted shows the others the security system he built for their headquarters, but Green Lantern is going to have a problem bringing it back as the entire contraption is colored yellow. 
Sparing his friend the embarrassment of revealing his power ring's weakness to anything yellow, the Flash paints the whole device blue in a second, and then the heroes are off with their new security system, leaving a bit of an impression on young Ted Kord. At the JLA headquarters, the corpse of the fire giant has been returned to the Justice League. Simon Carr tells Aquaman that the alien's body could be the first entry in the team's trophy room, a concept as foreign to Aquaman as the alien giant itself. Simon introduces Aquaman to his nephew, Snapper Carr, who will act as the team's electrician and mechanic while they're setting up shop. The Martian Manhunter returns from Star Labs in Metropolis with the new JLA signal devices that will allow each member to contact and home in on everyone else. The other three heroes arrive, and they all go about setting up their new base. Aquaman accidentally shatters a light bulb, and Green Lantern pulls a prank by sending the Sea King out looking for a bulb wrench. Black Canary asks about the power ring, and Green Lantern tells her his origin, that he was a test pilot summoned by a dying alien who wanted to pass the ring on to someone who was without fear. Black Canary tells him that even the original Green Lantern of the Justice Society wasn't completely fearless. That leads the current Green Lantern to confessing that he used to have a crush on Canary's mom, that he always had a thing for blondes. Black Canary does not take this well and walks off. In another part of the base, Flash and Martian Manhunter are setting up the library. Snapper Carr asks why they'd waste time on books when they have computers. Flash displays that he can still do a data search with the book faster than Snapper's computer. Aquaman asks Flash how he got his super speed, and Flash tells them about being struck by lightning and doused in chemicals in his lab. The others trade origins too, with Aquaman revealing that he has no day job, he just lives in the ocean. Jean tells them that he was brought to Earth accidentally by a teleportation accident, and that he is the last living Martian. He and Aquaman bond over their shared outsider status. Black Canary, who was eavesdropping on Flash's story, tells him she suspected he was a scientist from the way he talked back at Ted Kord's lab. Flash tells her he's a police forensics investigator, but Canary isn't ready to reveal what her private life is. Flash asks her if she knew the original Flash from the Justice Society, admitting that he'd like to ask the veteran hero for some pointers, but Canary can't help him find the other. She asks Flash about their Green Lantern, and they both agree that he's basically a good guy. Canary thinks Flash is too, and reveals that her father was a cop like him. In another part of the base, Aquaman expresses his frustration with humanity. Jean tries to reassure Aquaman that most people are pretty accepting, and that the easiest course is to be yourself. But he's saying this as much to Black Canary as he is to Aquaman. She's not so sure Jean's advice is sound, at least not for her situation. But she does thank the Martian Manhunter for treating her like an equal in the field, rather than a girl in need of protection. In the operations center of the base, Flash reveals the Justice League of America's meeting table, along with six chairs, each decorated with the logo of that hero. But wait, there's only five members of the team. The sixth chair is painted with the familiar S-shield of the Man of Steel. The members debate whether or not they should ask Superman to join their ranks, but before they can find him and ask, Superman appears at their table and takes his seat. Aquaman, Black Canary, Flash, and Green Lantern sit in stunned awe of the last son of Krypton. That is, until Superman reverts back to his natural state, the Martian Manhunter. 
Still facing a table of stupefied onlookers, Jean tries another sillier face, and this at last breaks the ice and the League members crack up at Jean's prank. Relieved of that tension, Green Lantern tells the room that addressing everyone by his or her codename is so formal. He begins to take his mask off, about to reveal his real name, when Aquaman shouts Bulb Wrench. The Sea King admonishes Green Lantern for playing a joke on him earlier, that he does not appreciate this side of human culture, and he can't see how it could make them better teammates. Green Lantern apologizes, but the air in the room has shifted. This isn't the time to reveal his civilian identity anymore. The heroes split up and go back to their real lives, all except for Jean, who sticks around a little bit longer. He goes to the JLA trophy room and stares for a long time at the inert form of the fire giant. Then, he flies up through the roof of the cave. And that ends JLA Year One, Chapter Three. All right, Ashford, what were your thoughts on this issue? You know what? This was uh, masterfully crafted. I'm usually never a fan of a superhero revealing themselves, but the writing and the artwork... It was so, everyone was so sure of themselves and comfortable in their own shoes. And it was, it made me feel very comfortable. So, and it, and it made how Jordan relaxed. And he went, you know what? These are some good guys. I feel like I'm part of a team, even though I'm part of a, a Green Lantern Corps. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This is intimate. Let me reveal myself to them. And then, like you said, the tone changed, you know, with the joke. And then... That was a good reminder from the writers, like, no, we're not going to reveal ourselves right now. This is not the chance for it. And and it made me go, yeah, wait a minute. This would be too soon to do that. But it was just so masterfully crafted with the characters being comfortable with themselves. And then you have how Jordan telling Black Canary, like, yeah, man, you know, you're my home. You know, I got pinups over <laughs> at my wall and you're going to feel comfortable with this. This won't weird you out at all. Her mom and Marilyn Monroe. He said those were his two crushes. Yeah, getting back to the other thing, like when I was reading this, I got so excited at that moment. I was like, yeah, he's going to reveal to them they're going to be friends more than just teammates, but they're actually going to know each other. And this, it's going to, you know, feel good and everything. And then it just stops and it's cut off and it's like, oh, wait, they're not ready. They're not friends yet. They don't know each other. They don't trust each other. And this, this moment where they don't reveal themselves to each other. This is going to be a big deal in the story later on, and I'm not going to reveal what that is, but because it's going to show up on a, a later podcast in this crossover. But the reveal of identities is a crucial point in this story, and it's delayed here. Like this, it could have been this moment, but instead, Wade chose to say, "Nope, this is something that they have to earn. It can't just be something where you know we've spent a couple hours with each other, we're comfortable. No, it's got to be something that has real dramatic purpose." It's an interesting episode. It's it's very much like if to put it in TV terms, like it's almost a bottle episode, and that a big yes. chunk of this sh- a big chunk of this issue is all of them in not necessarily one room, but in basically their base in just a few different rooms with these little dialogue scenes. There's hardly any action, and that's dispensed with on like page five. The rest of it is them just talking to each other and figuring out more about each other. We get a lot of the origins revealed without their identities known. We find out about Green Lantern's weakness, if we didn't already know that. We find out how he got the power ring from a dying alien. We find out how Flash got his powers. We find out how Martian Manhunter got stranded on Earth. We find out that Aquaman is just Aquaman. <laughs> he doesn't see himself as having this yeah. other identity. And none of this felt like an info dump. 
No, it didn't. And that's a credit to the writing. It was organically teased out. It was a way of building the characters. And I think part of it was the sort of investigative process. And I, I think this was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this issue was because of the role Black Canary plays in this one. Uh, and I, I hope that you were picking up on it too, is that, you know, we see her, she figures Flash out pretty early, you know, just based on the way he's talking in Ted Cord's lab. She's like, this guy's a scientist, or he at least knows this stuff. And she's, you know, eavesdropping on their conversations, and she picks up on stuff going on between Flash and, and between Martian Manhunter. And it, I thought it was like a nice little way of showing how smart she was and how capable she was, even when she's not fighting. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, as far as, you know, you thinking Black Canary, First Lady of the Justice League, I wonder, but... Since she is this legacy character, uh, she's experienced. Mm -hmm. She's seen the JSA at work. And like you were saying, how she was pegging folks. And she understood that, okay, Flash, the way he's behaving. And I remember my father, he's a cop. And basically, she's comparing and contrasting. She's looking at certain characters and their archetypes or whatever. And then she's comparing it to, well, this is what they would do in the JSA. Or the way that he's coming off, he kind of reminds me of Ted Grant. Or he's kind of reminded me of... And I like how Black Canary is coming off. She's holding her own. I don't really feel like she's out of her depth because she's around super powered heroes. And, you know, basically she has her martial arts skills. But I feel like she it almost comes off as if she's the veteran on the team. And maybe for all intents and purposes, she is. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because in, in the earlier episode, I mean, we, we established that she's fairly young. I think in issue two, it says she's only 19 years old. Exactly. And it's an interesting contrast because I think she thinks of herself as more experienced. And she feels like, yeah, I've grown up around this life. I know these people. And, and she's holding them to a higher standard. And we might see throughout like a little bit of resentment this, that these guys are like, you know what? We're pretty good. We're all stronger than you. You know, you don't have to keep comparing us to your Flash, your Green Lantern. You know, Black Canary, she is the Kevin Garnett, LeBron James, <laughs> Kobe Bryant of the JLA because it's like, you're 24, but this is just your second year in the league. I'm 24, but I've been in the NBA for since I was 17. <laughs> exactly. So, like, when they go, he's 28, but he's an old 28. Exactly. Yeah, she got drafted right out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> so, just going through a couple pages. On page two, when we meet Tio Morrow, I like that he's talking about his next creation. They're sort of foreshadowing that he'll eventually create Red Tornado, his own little artificial man. On page six, when we get to Ted Kord's lab, it's full of different like prototype ships, like the little bugs that Blue Beetle, because he'll eventually become the second Blue Beetle. And he's got these different like prototype bug ships in his lab. And one of them is the owl ship from Watchmen that Night Owl has, which I thought was a clever little joke because Night Owl was based off of Blue Beetle. You know what was interesting about this is they're doing a good job of contrasting these characters, but it's, it's very it's subtle. It's not like, I'm the wild and crazy one. Mm-hmm. I'm extremely smart. If you're not paying attention, it's almost like, man, we're looking at the, you know, like it's kind of like a group of friends where... You know, you know, I have a group of friends where we all look dramatically different. Mm-hmm. But then, like, you might see these uh, five, we call them same five guys, where they're different nationalities, but they still look like the same person. They're dressed the same. 
And if you're kind of just breezing through this, you're like, man, you know, Green Lantern, Aquaman and Flash, they kind of seem like the same person, but they're actually contrasted very well, but it's subtle. Yeah. It's not extreme. They did a good job with that. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Uh, and even kind of like thinking about that, at one point, Flash, like when she's like, when Black Canary says, yeah, she figures out that he's a scientist and he's a chemist for the crime lab, and he turns it back on her and he's wondering if she's a Navy SEAL or a firefighter, which, you know, credit to her physical capabilities if that's what he thinks of her. But I also think it's interesting that he, being a cop or coming from a role of law enforcement, would assume that the other heroes are also in that sort of service, that they also have yes. that sort of day job. And she kind of, she's like, uh, nope, not going to tell you what it is. And it's like, no, she runs a flower shop. She's not a Navy SEAL. So he was totally respecting her yeah. on that level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is kind of funny. I, I, I particularly like that moment where, you know, Jean is talking to Aquaman. He's like, you know, most people will respect you if you just be yourself. And he kind of like looks at Black Canary because he knows about her. He can kind of tell that she's hiding who she is. And you all, you see a lot of insecurity in her in that she's she's trying to figure out everybody else, but she's also very, very guarded about herself. And she is insecure. I mean, we see it like when she doesn't have her wig on and she feels like she doesn't get attention. The blonde hair and the fishnets, they do sexualize her, but she seems to get power from that. And that's what she thinks is important. And when, you know, Hal says, I've got a thing for blondes, Part of that hurts her because she knows that's not the truth of who she is. And this idea of her kind of fighting who she is on the inside and who she is on the outside, this will, again, culminate later on in the series. And this will be an important factor for her development of, is she Black Canary? Is she Dinah? Are the two the same or are they different? Uh, just a few other quick little notes, things that I thought were interesting. Uh, Flash wondering if his speed powers will wear off. I just thought that was kind of funny because it's like, yeah, why would you assume that if you get the superpower in a freak accident that you'll necessarily have it forever? And think about those insecurities out in the field where, uh-huh. like, you know, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to try to run up a building. Uh-huh. And then this is the time where the reservoir of this power runs out. Exactly. That's very interesting. And you got to think about it. These insecurities that these characters are having, could they have those if you had Wonder Woman, Batman, or Superman in the room? Or do we have to hide that because I need to now rise up to their um, confidence standards? It's a good question. Maybe we would be able to have this type of story. Yeah. Um, on page 15, Green Lantern has a prediction that he and Flash would live to a ripe old age. At the time that this story was written and at the time it was published, both of these characters were dead. Hal wow, Jordan, yes, Hal Jordan exactly. and Barry Allen were both dead at that time in this story. So uh, a little bit of interesting, bittersweet or tragedy coming from uh, from Mark Wade. Right, yeah, because I'm definitely a Kyle Rayner guy. Oh, <laughs> And then when John impersonates Superman, just before he, he kind of like he deflates the room with laughter, it looks like his face turns into Mr. Mix's Pitlick. Yes, and a little yes. bit of the Impossible Man from Marvel too, just when he kind of expands it. And it's it's a nice little joke. Overall, I really liked this episode. Like I said, it was interesting. It's not an action-packed episode. It's sort of a bottle issue where they just it's all about character development. It's all about the characters 
sussing each other out, kind of getting comfortable with each other, figuring out what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what are they good at, how did they become who they are. But just before they get to that point where they can take their masks off and let their hair down, something disrupts it. And we know it's like, nope, we're not friends yet. We're not the super besties. Well, you know, what's interesting, you know, you're using the term the uh, bottle episode. Um, a lot of the reasons why they use that is because, all right, this is the like maybe the penultimate episode or maybe the episode mm-hmm. before the penultimate episode. So we're going to use the budget money for the last two episodes of the season. Yeah. So we're going to do the bottle episode and we're going to be experimental. And then sometimes you end up having the best episode of the season from that. Well, so. it's, it's, it forces the, the writers and the actors and usually the directors to kind of work under new pressures. They have like new constraints where they have to get a little bit more creative. And you're right, those can tend to exactly. be, those can tend to be some of the more interesting, more memorable episodes of shows. So, and I think I think they did it really well in this one too. Any final thoughts on this episode? Or I keep saying episode. I'm going to invert these all the time. Any final thoughts on JLA Year One Issue Three before we move on? No, um, I think we we covered everything, and and it was fun. Yep. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. All right, cool. People, we are going to take another short break, and on the other side, issue four of JLA Year One. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol Destroyed Issue 121 1976 The New Doom Patrol Showcase 94 1987 Doom Patrol Volume 2 Copperberg Lytle 1989 Morrison and Case Issue 19 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark 2012 2013 2014 2015 2016 Waiting for Doom The Doom Patrol Podcast Because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. JLA Year One, issue number four, is written by Mark Wade and Brian Augustine, illustrated by Barry Kitson, lettered by Ken Lopez, colored by Pat Gary, and edited by Pete Tomasi. Cover price at $195, $275 in Canada. April 1998. However, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this issue was on the stands February 11th of 1998. On the cover of the book, we see the quintet, Martian Manhunter, The Black Canary, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and The Flash. The word interaction is written at the bottom of the cover. The name of this issue is While You Were Out. The story opens up with Snapper the JLA's mechanic and engineer, updating the security system's shield strength. 
as he is trying to figure out who separated the neodymium plates. Snapper overhears some Justice Leaguers arguing about what the JSA would have done if they faced the giant starfish. As starstruck as he is, Snapper continues his work, when all of a sudden he is snatched up by an enlarged green hand, which is the construct of the Emerald Space Cop himself, the Green Lantern, who is accompanied by Black Canary the Flash, Martian Manhunter, and Aquaman. Black Canary tells Green Lantern that Snapper is on their side. As Green Lantern lowers defenseless Snapper onto the ground, he, Snapper, informs everyone that he knows their names. Perhaps they should show him the common courtesy of learning his. Perhaps that might be a little too much to ask. Snapper continues by telling the Justice League that he has updated a lot of the gear at the headquarters, including syncing all the timepieces to an atomic clock, which reminds everyone, save for Aquaman, that they must return to their civilian lives before their presence, or lack thereof, goes noticed. Aquaman, who doesn't have a civilian life, walks away alone, wondering if Locust is taking the day off. At the Locust headquarters, two unnamed Locust scientists are walking through the headquarters discussing the different technology and weapons that are in development. One of the scientists asked about the ray projector. The other unnamed scientist responds that everyone is on schedule and under the budget, thanks to the genius of T.O. Morrow and Professor Ivo. Using the alien DNA, Locust has been able to construct the graft donor. Apparently, the Locust organization has chosen the Blue Beetle as its test subject. A quick cutaway to the Blue Beetle who is trying to seek refuge in an alleyway, bloody and despondent, pleads for his safety to a person, persons, or thing that we as the audience, reader, cannot see as of yet. Back at Ferris Aircraft, Hal Jordan is schooling FAA investigator Laura Denton on all of his duties, letting her know that as a test pilot, he doesn't abandon ship. He likes to ride long and hard which makes Pi, the mechanic at Fair's aircraft, roll his eyes. Laura is starting to suspect that Hal is coming on to her. Hal is not shying away from this accusation at all. But before things can really steam up, Carol Ferris shows up on the scene, reaming Hal out for being absent the previous night. She demands that Hal tells her where he was. And Hal, not wanting to out himself as the Green Lantern, explains that he has nothing to say, which leads to his suspension. Cutting to Ocean World, Aquaman is swimming with the fishes. Not in that way. He is actually swimming with the fish in captivity. The security immediately pulls guns on him, instructing him to get out of the tank. Security starts to taunt Aquaman, and he's starting to oblige their threats. When Officer Perez, U.S. Coast Guard, shows up on the scene, instructing Aquaman not to engage in any trouble that may lead to a lawsuit. A woman that works at Ocean World, who apparently values Aquaman's opinions, asks Aquaman if the fish like living in a captivity. Aquaman reassures her that the fish actually appreciates their living conditions, which allows them to avoid predators. 
Back in the alley where the Blue Beetle was being attacked, a mystery figure that can stretch his or her limbs wraps his or her arms around the Blue Beetle. After taking a severe beating, the Blue Beetle is outcoded and captured. Back at Barry Allen's dwelling, he is preparing to have a romantic meal with Iris. Iris actually appears at the door before Barry arrives. But this is the Scarlet Speedster we're dealing with. So he is able to clean his apartment, prepare the dinner in seconds flat before Iris can rap on the door a second time. He invites her in. They sit and talk. Iris asks about his day. In a split second, Barry thinks about his earlier escapade with the JLA, which leads Iris into giving him a hard time about his hesitation. Later in the evening, a birthday party is being thrown for Wesley Dodds. Dinah, not wearing her blonde wig, arrives on her motorcycle outside the suburban home. When she enters the house, Black Canary is welcomed by warm hellos. The old Justice Society members praise her for doing such a good job with her new affiliation, the Justice League. She, Black Canary, is humbled, explaining that the Justice League is no JSA. Alan Scott explains that Black Canary is the only legacy character that is active. She is the only link the, JS ha the JSA has to the future. Al Pratt confesses to Ted Knight that he wishes he had someone to pass his legacy to. Ted Knight walks into the kitchen where Dinah's mother is. They share an awkward moment at the punch bowl. Junior, as they call the original Black Canary's daughter, walks in. Ted explains that he has to leave the party early. Dinah asks her mother what is going on. Dinah's mom hits her with a bombshell and is not blonde. Even later that same night, let us say bed, bath, and way beyond, at the Middleton Police Headquarters, Detective Jean Jeans, better known as the Martian Manhunter, is greeted by his partner, Diane, and her date, Detective Vince Logan. Vince Logan is your classic sleazeball. We are talking human resources on speed dial sleazeball. Vince leaves Diane and John alone for a second to get some coffee. Diane asks John what he thinks, claiming that he is really good at reading people, ignorant to the fact that he is actually an alien who is masking around as a human. He tells her that Vince Logan is already trying to think of ways to get her to his jacuzzi. Diane denies this, stating that there is no way Vince is that much of a cheese ball. Seconds later, Vince invites her to the jacuzzi. He grabs Diane by the arm and leads her out of there. Diane implores John to join them so he can meet new friends. <laughs> he grins, allowing her to be dragged, explaining that he already has some new friends. Back at the Locust Labs, the two scientists that we met earlier has the Blue Beetle tied down against his will, ready to be experimented on. Across from the Blue Beetle, an alien construct with an instant motor response to its grafted limbs, the Locust scientist turns up the machine that the alien construct and Blue Beetle are hooked up to, causing the Blue Beetle to pass out from pain and shock of being what seems to appear 
to be that he's armless. However, the alien construct appears to have the arms of the blue beetle, which in moments quickly becomes reduced to protoplasm. The failed experiment does really, doesn't really put the locust scientists in any distress. Now they must find another test subject. No need to look any further. On the last page, we see Madame Rouge, the brain, and Monsieur Mala from the Brotherhood offering up their services. Yeah, so Ryan, what did you think about issue four while you were out? Once again, really, really enjoyed this issue, and I, I have to thank you for describing Diane Mead's boyfriend as the human resources on speed dial sleazeball. I love that description. Um, it's some things I have to say about that, but I'm going to wait. Okay, we'll get back to that. It was good. I, there were elements of this of this issue that I liked, maybe not quite as much as the other one. Uh, the first thing I noticed was that we had a new inker. Uh, Barry Kitson wasn't inking this issue himself. We got Michael Bear on inks. Some of the pages I really, really like. I think he does a good job. But there are a few pages or a few panels where I'm not quite sure. And I think it's on page three or page four. Uh, he has an image of Black Canary, and I think she just looks a little bit too old. I'm looking um, at it right now. You're right. Yeah, it, it's when she's basically telling everybody that her, her mom would eat Green Lantern alive uh, as, as she's walking. He would like her. that, apparently. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, I think there's just a little bit too much inking, too many lines around her cheeks and around her neck. It just makes her look like an older character than she's supposed to be. There aren't a whole lot of examples like that, because just like the very next image we see of her on the next page, she looks good. Uh, it, it's certainly it's still impressive art. The pencils are great. The inks are mostly good, but there were just a few occasional panels like that where they just kind of jumped out, and I noticed the real difference between the inking in last issue versus this one. The, the art, you know, uh, because I'm so into the story, I'm, I'm fine with it, but now that you point that out, yes, I see how it may come off as inconsistent, but yeah, I'm so wrapped up in the story and just the... Like the vignettes of how this is told and the pacing, I, I think I'm overlooking a lot. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I see this one panel where it's um, it's Aquaman and he's in, I guess, the, the captivity with the, the fish. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he looks really menacing. And if they were to tell us he was 47 years old, I would think, yeah, okay. Whereas I think they're trying to pass off like, no, these people are at the beginning of their career. Yeah. But um, as far as the, uh, the story, I tell you this. Um, how Jordan, how do you think he came off in this, like as far as, you know, making passes at every woman that walks by? And do you think that, you know, as far as like, you know, someone like myself where I was just getting into D.C., I'm pretty sure this was my introduction to how Jordan, because I remember it took me a while to read Green Lantern because I was intimidated by it. I thought, oh, no, I think I might need to know, uh, you know, a lot of backstory just to understand what's happening. And in this, they have him. He's he's not sleazeball. He's not exactly slime. But he's kind of he's he's like that friend that's making you feel a little uncomfortable. Like uh, mm -hmm. if we can get away without telling Jim that we're going out, let's <laughs> do it. I don't want to be involved in something. So my favorite TV show of all time is Cheers. 
And I, <laughs> yes. and I loved Sam Malone. And Sam Malone could be a hound dog, but he could make it seem classy and cool. So right. in that sense, I, I, I can kind of forgive Hal Jordan for acting like this. He's a pilot. He's a cocky – he's a test pilot. His job is literally putting his ass in danger every single time he gets in that cockpit. So I don't really have a problem with him, you know, putting the moves on this girl and, you know, she's like an insurance adjuster and he's, you know, just trying to impress her and everything. And I also think the way the scene played it off, because we're kind of seeing it through his mechanic's eyes, Tom Kalmaku, who's just kind of like rolling his eyes like, I can't believe he's doing this again. But I also, I was I was kind of more fascinated by the way the scene ends, because Carol Ferris comes in and calls him to task. She's like, you've been screwing up. She's like, you need to explain, you're missing deadlines and it's going to cost me my business. Why shouldn't I suspend you? And he can't tell her that it's because he's Green Lantern and now he's also got a second alternate, like a third job with the Justice League. But the thing about the Green Lantern, and I think this is something that Mark Wade was really keying up on, is if you go back to his origin story in the 60s, Green Lan- Hal Jordan was picked because he was fearless, but also because he was honest. He had that innate nobility. He wasn't going to use the ring for evil purposes. And even in this, it's it's just part of his character. He's not going to make excuses for her. He's not going to lie to her. He'll he'll do a sin of omission. He's going to hide the fact that he's Green Lantern, but he's not going to feed her a BS line, even though by basically just saying, I can't tell you, I was just busy. It, that, that's not what she wants to hear, and she ends up suspending him for it. So yeah, we see kind of him at at his lowest moment because we see like this is the one way that he can be vulnerable aside from the color yellow. But it's also we see the integrity of his character a little bit. It's a little bit of a reversal when we see him macking on that girl. <laughs> I, I think you're you're right. We're not supposed to like him in that moment. We're supposed to kind of roll our eyes like the mechanic is and say, "Really, really, you you are just a little a shade under sleazy." And then but it was, it was, I guess it was redeeming when, you know, he, he could have bragged about being the Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. But like you were saying, the way that he just, he, he took the blame, he took the suspension. He didn't wait till after hours and like, hey, look, Carol, don't tell anyone, but I'm the Green Lantern. Right. You know, unsuspend me. And then as far as this being this origin story, and I remember this was an introduction for me to how Jordan I thought it was cool where you find out that when he's doing the test piloting, he doesn't take the ring with him. Right. Yeah, that was a big thing. I think Mark Wade came up with that. Oh, okay. I, That's I, interesting. I, I think, and I'm not sure if it was for this because Mark Wade also wrote um, like a mini series called The Brave and the Bold that was about Flash and Green Lantern team ups. And maybe it was in that one. I don't remember which one came first. I think that came out first. And that was where he kind of established that Hal wouldn't fly with the ring on because it would be too much of a crutch and he would lose that edge. He couldn't be the best, most dangerous pilot if he knew he had that safety net. Which is, yeah, I just think it's a fascinating. Like, I I have said this before. I think I've mentioned this on other podcasts. I, I think who Hal Jordan is is he is Maverick in the beginning of Top Gun. He's the Maverick who will turn around and go after Cougar, even though his jet is running out of fuel. He's the, I feel the need, the need for speed. He's that Maverick. And it crushes me because in the movie Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds, I think 
the producers on that movie thought of Maverick from the second half of the movie, after Goose dies. The Maverick that is insecure, that has lost his edge and needs to get it back. And I just, oh, that pains me. That's very interesting. So this issue is sort of about the private lives of these characters. We, we're not, again, we're not seeing them doing their heroic day jobs. We're seeing them doing their actual day jobs. Uh, so we get into Martian Manhunter as Detective Jean Jones. So this scene. Oh, the scene where um, his partner uh, brings her dates along and she wants him to uh, fill them out. Uh-huh. Or, or a scene before that. Now, I tell you what, what was interesting about that. So this guy, I mean, uh, classic sleazeball. You know, he comes in and I, I, what's this, what's the guy's name? It's I mean, it's like the, the guy's name, you know, like, man, I do not trust my daughter to go on a prom date with this guy. It's um, Vince Logan. OK, Vince <laughs> Logan, big man on campus, Vince Logan. So I'm going to tell you what was interesting in here. They're playing around with this. I don't know, you know, because, you know, I haven't read ahead or reread ahead, but I guess they're playing around with this friend zone. So she, you know, the guy, uh, Vince Logan, he goes over to get some coffee because, hey, I know it's 10 o'clock, but it's not the end of the night. So he walks up and he gets some coffee. And then you see uh, the partner and Jean Jones. She says, you know, hey, you know, what do you think about this guy? You know, I know you, you have a good read on people. And he was like, yes, um, he is going to invite you to his hot tub, hot tub time machine, you know. <laughs> and she's like, no way. Come on now. His name is Vince Logan. Do you think he's going to invite me to his hot tub before a dinner and a date and a movie? And then he comes over. He's like, yeah, let's go to the, uh, the, the jacuzzi. So he yanks her. And she, if you look at the, the panel, she looks like she's in fear of her life. <laughs> and the Martian Manhunter is a superhero. And she looks worried. And, you know, he can read your thoughts when you have your best poker face. You know she's thinking, I don't feel safe. You look at the panel. He's grinning. And she goes, hey, you should come with us. You can meet some new friends. And he was like, silly rabbit. I already have some new friends. And he allows her to leave. I trust that he knows she's not going into actual danger. <laughs> like, Let's she, believe that. Let's believe that. I mean, she, she is a cop. He right. oh, yeah. is as much her partner. He knows her well enough that, you know, if, if this goes bad, she might have to take out her handcuffs earlier than she thinks in this date. Whoa. But, but I, I think he knows, like, this is, a, it's partly fear that, oh my God, I've picked the worst guy in the world to go on a date with. But also part of it is just like the, wait a minute, I, I tease you that you're such a good, but how could you have read that much? And I think he's just having fun with it because he knows her that well. But I get, it's going to turn into one of those uh, Love Actually Part 7. <laughs> wait a minute, the perfect guy was there all along. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, what about this one scene? I, I love it. And it to me, it has that, it almost has kind of a Watchmen vibe to it where uh, Dinah... She goes to the uh, birthday party. Uh-huh. And I just, I love legacy characters. And I like when the younger characters actually have respect for the older ones. Yeah. Like when they're rebelling and then being disrespectful, I'm like, okay, I don't want to read this. Yeah. And introducing this whole aspect of, 
you know, that was cool about Watchmen. Let's say it's a lot of people, they're reading that story, but they don't read comics, but they just heard that, you know, hey, these are one of those things you should read. You know, it's like Time Magazine, Top 100. And it introduces that whole idea of, you know, there were heroes before these heroes. And then they get older and they can't do it anymore. And see, and I like that, you know, uh, reading about how Jordan being Green Lantern for 100 years, I'm like, eh, let's pass the buck, you know, right. let's pass this mantle. So I love the fact that she goes in, um, she respects them. She can't, she has to stop talking about her ex. Like she has to stop talking about JSA so much <laughs> around the, the new guys. And that, you know, that's hard to do. And they're like, yeah, kiddo, that's great. You know, we saw you on the news. Good job with that. And the whole moment at the end where she's with her mother and the mother drops a bombshell on her. I'm surprised at how much I like this bit of, uh, of retconning that they did. The, the Watchmen comparison is actually pretty apt because Black Canary's history got changed a lot right around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths for weird reasons having to do with like the way her character originated in the Golden Age and then needing to be with the Justice League. There was all sorts of timey-wimey craziness, so they needed to make her a legacy character. But the first way they approached it caused a lot of problems. And then Crisis proved to be the, the way to just say, okay, it's a mother and a daughter. They're different people who have been on different teams. The funny thing is, as they're doing this, at almost the exact same time, Alan Moore is writing Watchmen, and he's got this Silk Spectre character that has the same basic deal. It's a mother-daughter combo, and we see both of their lives. So there is this question of how much does one reflect the other. Now, this element of the story certainly picks up, and James Robinson, when he was writing Starman in the late 90s, in Starman Annual Number 2, which came out in September of 1997, it came out like three or four months before this issue of JLA Year One. That annual of Starman is what established that Dinah Drake, the first Black Canary, had had an affair with Starman, Ted Knight. Prior to that, they had teamed up together. There were issues of The Brave and the Bold published in the 60s where they partnered together. Um, but there was never any hint of other thing, anything else like that. They were both married characters. And in this annual written by James Robinson, Starman Annual Number 2, he established that, no, they briefly had an affair. They slept together. And then they had to stop because of craziness with one of their villains. And then just a couple months later, I mean, they like Mark Wade picks up on this. He's like, yeah, I'm going to introduce this. And then we have this moment where Ted Knight sees Dinah. They have this almost connection. And the daughter, Dinah Laurel Lance, picks up on this, and she's like, whoa, what's going on? And she, the bomb is dropped on her. And we just hear the, what? <laughs> just like And the screamed, zoom out. Yes, screamed from outside of the house. Which, considering the fact that she has a sonic scream, that could have been very dangerous for all of those older people. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, I, I like that. I like that little bit of history of the two of them. It seems like it... It would be something that's more kind of salacious that I, I wouldn't be interested in. But I don't know. For some reason, I like that part of Black Canary's history that the older one actually had an affair with, with Starman. And there's another line in that sequence, uh, unrelated, where Al Pratt is talking to Ted Knight. And Al Pratt is saying, you know, I wish I had somebody to pass my legacy on. And Ted says, well, my son David is thinking about becoming the new Starman. And again, if you're familiar with the Starman comic, David Knight was Starman in the first issue, 
and he gets killed in that first issue. And Ted's other son, Jack, has to be the new Starman. And it's very interesting because David was the heir apparent. He was the favored son who was going to be the new hero. And it's like a head fake right away. It's like the the killing uh, in in Psycho. It's like, wait, where did that come from? You just completely changed who the main character of this story is. Yes. And it was fun just uh, going through this party and everyone's in their civvies and, you know, the name dropping and... You know, if you caught it, it was great. Um, if you didn't, it wouldn't take away from the story. Yeah. And I guess the last one that we haven't really talked about is uh, Aquaman, or you mentioned it uh, briefly. I really like the scene where Aquaman goes to basically SeaWorld, and he's like in, the, <laughs> in this marine park just swimming with, and security freaks out, and they're pointing guns and tasers at him. Like, get out of there, get swimming. And he's basically just, I'm here to see that you're treating the animals with respect. And it would be so easy to just say, yeah, like say that the people who, who cage animals and put them in zoos, that they're mistreating them, that it's awful conditions. And he's like, he's like, screw you guys, I'm out of here, I hate everybody on the surface, I don't get you people. And he's walking out, and we actually get one of these caretakers who just fl- flats out asks him, she's like, can you tell us, are the fish happy here? Mm-hmm. And he's got this really kind of, just a, a very blunt but honest answer. He's like, some of them are. They know that they're safe. They know they're well cared for. Some of them actually prefer this. And she's like, thank you. And I, I think it was a really cool kind of understated moment, but I emotionally it landed for me. And I thought it was nice. And it was a good moment because Aquaman, he had that issue where they played a joke on him. And he was like, oh, is this what humans are about? Yeah. And then he got to see like, OK, all of them are not like this. And it's like with these dystopia books. Where, you know, they find out, wait a minute, we're being controlled by someone. This isn't fair. Mm -hmm. You know, let's fight back. But, you know, like they showed us in The Matrix. Yeah, if you want to be unplugged and know the truth, that's awesome. But we're down here eating slop. When you were plugged into The Matrix, maybe it was all in your mind, but you were eating gourmet meals and you were safe. (laughs) So that's, you know, he's asking like, you know, the fish, you know, you're in captivity. Is this fair? They're like, man, yes. When we were out in the wild, we were being chased every night. We couldn't even go to sleep. Now we got guaranteed meals. We have an audience. We're safe. No one's trying to kill us. We're um, overpopulated, man. This is awesome, Aquaman. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> oh, we're cool. That's good. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't need a whole lot. Plus, I've only got a three-second memory. This is cool. That is hilarious. So. Yeah. And then we have, uh, you know, with the Flash, oh, yeah, the whole thing with uh, zooming in and, you know, before she can knock on the door a second time, he prepared that turkey. Now, I know he I don't know if he rubbed his hands around it immediately or that first course just lasted, you know, so many minutes. But, you know, Iris came in and uh, it was pleasant. I don't know. I, I, I guess I was expecting them to have a fight like you're always like you're always. But it was pleasant. And that was great. Yeah, and I did kind of, I kind of had that same note. I was like, okay, he can put the turkey in the oven at super speed, but that doesn't make the turkey cook any faster. <laughs> like, they were they, they were just nibbling on that salad, and <laughs> they were talking about their day, and yeah. he was omitting things, and she was accusing him of, oh, is there some other woman? <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 let's just keep talking just, because that turkey is still cold. This does actually put, Uh, this issue on somewhat of a timeline because we see as this story is is beginning they have just fought Starro 
And in the beginning, when they go see Snapper Carr, they call him that kid who helped us figure out how to stop Starro. And it kind of helps to put it into the timeline, because the JLA's first adventure, their first comic book appearance, which was in Brave and the Bold issue 28, Starro was the first enemy that they fought. But that wasn't chronologically their first adventure together, that was just the first published one. Their origin was told a couple of issues later, and that's when they fought the Appalachians, these, you know, seven sort of elemental monsters from another planet. So we are kind of getting this roadmap of, it's like, okay, this is where the story puts it, now we're up to speed with their first adventure together. And we're, we're seeing that play out. So I like the way they, they did that. I like how they put it on the timeline. Uh, my last little note, it was cool to see the original Blue Beetle, uh, the Dan Garrett version. This was the Golden Age version, just because I've always liked that costume. It was like the uh, the Phantom. It was like so many other characters from that era. But it's just, it's a cool design that I like seeing him. Like I mentioned before, this is my early introduction into immersing myself into DC and I'm being shown a Blue Beetle character that is basically on the run for his life and I started reading DC and reading comics and basically my next Blue Beetle story is I I think him being killed by the Omax. Okay, so different Blue Beetle, but yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited about, you know, Blue Beetle coming back in this whole rebirth thing and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to dive on in. Any other thoughts? Uh, of course, the issue ends with a setup of the Brotherhood of Evil with the Brain, Monsieur Mala, and Madame Rouge. Uh, these are notably Doom Patrol villains, which can tell you what we can expect from the next episode of this podcast crossover. I've always liked these bad guys, especially the Brain and Monsieur Mala. I just think it's funny that we've got a brain soaking in brine water with a, on a on a bar stool essentially that looks like a skull mask <laughs> yes. that speaks with a french accent and his gorilla manservant and i'm disappointed because usually mala has a red beret and a machine gun and he doesn't in this right page, so. you know this looks um, one it looks awesome but yeah. it is creepy as all oh, get yeah. out oh yeah with that stretched neck now, I, I tell you this, I don't know if they were the scientists of uh, this organization, but I guess reading this from an American perspective, was I supposed to assume that they were German? Um, I didn't think that, but now looking at this, I was thinking, the is this what they were Locus? going for? Uh, Locus. Um, you know, those two scientists that were just going around. And I never thought that, but I was thinking, should I read this again and well, do the horrible American-German accent of... Are these wacky scientists doing weird experiments? Their uniforms are that sort of olive gray that's very Nazi-esque. They do kind of look like Nazi uniforms. And the leadership seems to be these very Aryan blondes that I I didn't read them as Germans, but I also I can also perfectly understand why somebody would. It's like they were playing to our sensibilities. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, uh, I think uh, Eddie Izzard, yeah. where he was like, yeah, we know why you guys had a Star Wars, the British being bad guys. <laughs> yeah, we saw that. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, that's all I have. I mean, this was, uh, I, I had a ball and a biscuit with this one. Yeah, me too. This was a fun episode. I'm glad we got to review these two issues of JLA Year One. Listeners, if you're curious, where does JLA Year One go from here? 
Issues 5 and 6 will be covered by Mike and Paul over on the next episode of Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. And after that, issues 7 and 8 will be covered on a future episode of the Lantern cast, hosted by Chad Bokelman and Mark Marble. And then the rest of the series will be reviewed on upcoming episodes of the Supermates podcast, the Idol Head of Diablo, Comic Reflections, and finally, Views from the Long Box. All of them should be out this month, so if you're not subscribed to any of those shows, and shame on you because you should be, but definitely pay attention to our social media feeds because we will definitely be advertising every new chapter as it comes out. Ashford, thank you very, very much for being part of this episode of Power of Fishnets with me. This was great. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, first of all, Ryan, I have to say that this was an honor. I just feel... Like, you validated me by asking me to come on the show. I'm so delighted. You're, I'm under, nervous. you're underselling yourself. You're way too good for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. But, you know, if you want to find us, we have uh, Feathers and Foes. It is a podcast about the birds of prey. And we are on Twitter at Feathers and Foes. And I just would like to shamelessly plug another show that I do. It's called straight out of Gallifrey and it's a podcast about Doctor Who but specifically Doctor Who episodes that feature other time lords other than the Doctor. Now there's another show called Straight Out of Gallifrey but I believe we have more episodes. We have an earlier start date and we have artwork from my co-host Josh Young where it's a uh, it's a drawing of a time lord in the head and shoulders get up. So um, tune into that if you're into it. And oh yeah, and on Twitter we are um, S O Gallifrey, like so Gallifrey on Twitter. And of course, you can catch us on iTunes with those handles. Awesome. Well, one more time, thank you very much for being part of this episode. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much. And now, listener feedback from Power of Fishnets episode four. That was when I covered issues eight and nine of the current Black Canary series. If you remember back then, I tried doing something different, doing the listener feedback segment before reviewing that month's stories. Well, a few people voiced their disapproval of this change. Martin Gray, from the wonderful blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, said he prefers the feedback segment at the end, like the letters column in a comic. And Paul Hicks, better known as Flanger, from Waiting for Doom, said if I do the listener feedback first, it'll force him to leave comments on the episode before listening to the show. That's a little backwards thinking, but water flows backwards in Flanger's country, so we'll forgive him. Paul also said he looks forward to reading the current Black Canary story in trade eventually, which was a common sentiment among listeners, and he said the fighting tournament in Black Canary issue 8 reminds him of the Brotherhood of the Monkey Fist crossover that Chuck Dixon masterminded in the 90s. Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast and Pod Dylan said, even though I've pretty much stopped buying all DC except Aquaman, the Canary book keeps jumping out to me because it looks really cool. The art style reminds me a bit of Alex Toth, who drew my single favorite Black Canary story. Given your enthusiastic review, maybe I will finally take a crowbar, open my wallet, and buy a few issues. Yeah, all I can say is try an issue or two or check out the first trade paperback. It's not a bad purchase. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and Power Records said, A fill-in issue in the middle of a storyline is such a downer. You think they just ship the book late. Maybe they want the title off the decks before Rebirth. 
and Dr. Ainge from the Supergirl blog said, The fill-in issue was fine, but did delay the continuation of the better story. That said, many fill-in issues stink, so I was glad this one was enjoyable. Yeah, to both of their points, like I said during the episode, the fill-in story on issue 9 was fine, it was actually a fun story, it just came in at an inopportune time. And yes, after the series already suffered a lot of delays last winter, I think DC is just pushing it out the door to make room for their rebirth titles. Martin Gray, on the other hand, had more positive things to say about the fill-in issue. He said, I enjoyed the fill-in more than probably any other issue. A nice done-in-one, full of dark crime figures and a crap assassin from Team 7 or somewhere. Uh, Martin continues, I always liked Morita on Jonah Hex, but the scratchiness here apparently attempting to meet the Black Canary house style was a bit of a disappointment. And Dinah looked like a sex worker. The double page taking down the assassin scene was far too geared to the heterosexual male gaze for a book supposedly about an empowered woman. Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog left a few notes. He said he's so happy we finally have some details on the White Ninja, mentioning, I was seriously afraid we'd go into rebirth with this mystery just hanging. Uh, I sure hope not. Uh, Clinton also expressed his happiness with seeing Vixen in the book. A lot of people liked seeing her, so that was cool. Uh, and Clinton said, Every time you talked about the tournament, the only thing running through my brain was the song Fight to Survive that plays during the fight montage in the movie Bloodsport. Finally, Darren Sutherland from Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds podcast said, Your enthusiasm for the current Black Canary book is infectious. I feel sorry for you seeing the book become more of what you want as it progresses, even as you know the book is coming to an end in just a couple of months. I hope Rebirth still gives you something you enjoy, because I definitely want to keep hearing you talk about the blonde bombshell. Well, I will definitely continue to talk about Black Canary, but I don't know that it will be about her appearances in the Rebirth titles. Uh, by the way, she's starring in Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, which I think starts in July, but she's also in the first issue of Green Arrow. I don't know if she's going to be a regular fixture in that book, or just occasional. But... I'm approaching the Rebirth books very conservatively, and I'll talk about them in greater detail on a future episode, but what I'd really like to do after the current Black Canary series wraps up is go back and cover her stories from the dollar issue era of World's Finest. I mean, the blonde bombshell drawn by Mike Nasser? Why has it taken me so long to review these stories? Anyway, that's going to be all for this episode of Power of Fishnets. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashford about JLA Year One. The next part of the crossover will be on Waiting for Doom, so definitely check that out. I want to thank all of my listeners, everyone who left a comment or supported the show on social media. I want to thank Dr. Ange. This whole idea of reviewing JLA Year One started with him, and then the Waiting for Doom guys really embraced it and coordinated the bulk of this effort with all of the other shows. So big thanks to all of them. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Something nasty on the way
It's true.